0: Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Good
0: morning, male rat 13. Morning, female rat twenty one.
2: So, any news?
0: I think I'm very close to cracking the whole food pellet thing.
2: Okay, tell me more.
0: You press twice on the blue lever, then once on the red bar.
2: I did that, and I got a shock.
0: No, the shock is once on the blue, twice on the red.
2: No, see, I got two food pellets when I put my right paw in. I took my right paw out, and then I put my right paw in, and I shook it all about. No,
0: that's the hokey pokey fallacy. It's been totally discredited. When you hokey-pokeyed, you happened to hit the right buttons and levers, and you created a false positive pattern recognition.
2: Dude, that is crazy talk. I totally did that little dance and I got food!
0: Why does no other rat understand what I'm saying? What are you saying? What I'm saying is that it's bigger than bars and levers and food. I'm the key figure in an ongoing government charade, the plot to conceal the truth about this maze, a conspiracy that reaches into the lives of every rat on this planet. You don't see the pattern, the water bottle, the wheel, the playscape, the shocks, the rewards. You don't see how it's all part of an overarching strategy to... Are you even listening to me? I put my right paw in and I turn
2: myself about. Why am I not getting the food?
0: Because that's the wrong pattern, you imbecile.
2: Today on the show, our never-ending search for patterns in nature, the cosmos, and human behavior. And now he sees patterns in the clouds telling him to call someone named Noreen... Colin
3: McEnroe. This is the only show that will be introduced occasionally by rats. Uh, all right, so we're we're going to be talking about patterns today. We're going to talk about um, ways in which they exist, ways in which we see patterns that aren't really there, uh, ways in which we sometimes fail or have failed historically to, detect, detect, to see patterns. I won't even try to say detect, uh, to see patterns that were there all the time. Um, we have a lot of different levels that we're going to plumb here, but I mean, I think We have to begin with the idea that it is our natural instinct to try to see patterns, to try, if if you look at our creation myth, it begins with God creating order out of chaos. We don't want there to be chaos. We want there to be a certain amount of order. We want to be able to see what's there. Um, It's difficult sometimes, and many times most of us trying to make sense out of reality sound a lot like this guy.
4: Man, I've got certain information, all right? Certain things have come to light, and you know— Has it ever occurred to you that uh, instead of, uh, you know, running around uh, uh, blaming me, you know, given the nature of all this new, you know, this could be a a, a lot more uh, 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 complex. I mean, it's not just it might not be just such a simple, uh, you
3: know. Okay, so that might be sort of the classic example of a Dionysian mind trying to make an Apollonian statement. But, but we do want to understand what the patterns are. Uh, and um, so I'm going to begin with uh, Michael Shermer, science writer, historian, founder of the Skeptic Society, is the author of a dozen books, including the New York Times bestselling The Believing Brain. So Michael Shermer, to a certain degree, we are
1: wired to want to find the pattern, right? That's correct. Yes, I, I call us pattern-seeking primates. That's what we do. All animals do it. In fact, the whole idea of, of association learning, connecting the dots, connecting A to B to C and so on, is to try to find causal links that uh, help us survive. So those that found the links more successfully than others were more likely to procreate and here we are. So the thought experiment I use is imagine you're a hominid on the plains of Africa three and a half million years ago. Your name is Lucy. You're a small brain, little hominid, and you hear a rustle in the grass. Is it a dangerous predator or or is it just the wind? So if you assume that the rustle in the grass is a dangerous predator, and it turns out it's just the wind, you've made a type 1 error, a false positive, but no harm. You just become more cautious, you move away, but that's a a low energy expenditure, and it doesn't cost much. On the other hand, if you assume that the rustle in the grass is just the wind, and it turns out it's a dangerous predator, you're lunch. You've just been given a Darwin Award for taking yourself out of the gene pool early before reproducing. So my argument is that natural selection selected uh, brains that are more... More likely to err one way than the other. That is, assume that most rustles in the grass are dangerous predators and not the wind, just in case, on that uh, cost-benefit analysis uh, format. And uh, so that's why we tend to believe weird things, as I like to say. It's not that people are ignorant or stupid or uneducated. It's that our brains just tend to believe practically everything we see or hear. And then to then become skeptical takes an extra step of cognition that that requires effort.
3: You know, back to that predator example too, there's a lot of things about our wiring that, that sort of make it work that way well for us too. Like I, We've discovered that our, our brains – Count proportionally and logarithmically, like our brains are wired to understand that the difference between one and two predators, one and two lions, is much more significant than the difference between eleven and twelve lions. You know, there's just sort of ways in which uh, our brains really want to help us with these kinds of patterns and the significance of these patterns. Um, also with us is John Briggs. John Briggs is in the studio with me. He's a, a professor of English in the department at Western Connecticut State University. He's the author of Fractals: The Patterns of Chaos and, Tur- and The Turbulent Mirror. We're going to later in the show talk a lot about fractals and chaos theory and how it turns up here. But John Briggs, I think it's worth bringing it up kind of at the beginning too and saying one of the differences as we sort of look at this changing structure of understanding of reality is new ways of thinking about patterns. Things that we might have assumed weren't patterns are patterns and ways in which we assumed that we could detect patterns may have turned out to be uh, situations in which we we kind of had over controlled uh, and and kind of sucked all the chaos and entropy out of a much more complicated situation. Uh,
4: yeah, one way to think about it is <clears throat> our our brain and our uh, nervous system has many pattern recognition uh, logarithms uh, or <clears throat> algorithms and. Uh, and feature detectors. Uh, what Michael was talking about earlier, uh, you could also say that uh, those those patterns uh, become stereotypes. So one of one of the characteristics of uh, our pattern seeking uh, brains is that they tend to sim- they have to by nature simplify the world, so that uh, that we can. Um, <clears throat> Detect whether they're what's rustling in the bushes, or, or is a wind, or, or a lion, uh, or something dangerous. So, uh, the downside of, of creating these in memory, um, these patterns in memory, and some of the some of the patterns are formed in the brain through uh, evolution that has actually put them in the brain. There, there's a study back in the 1950s that. Uh, We have uh, in our cerebral, in our uh, occipital cortex, um, uh, cells that will recognize orientation of light. Uh, So that's a built-in recognition of uh, certain signals coming in from the outside. Other patterns we we learn through acculturation, Uh, and when we have those patterns, they become stereotypes that uh, have a downside so we operate a lot in the world through stereotypes uh which uh, are belief systems uh and <clears throat> it's one of the reasons for example that that um, individuals may uh, indicate a, a prejudicial uh stereotype with regard to race uh but they may have friends of that race that they don't apply the stereotype to because they have seen the nuances in the stereotype so uh, I guess my message would be that, that uh, uh, pattern recognition often operates on a, on a gross simplification of
3: reality. Well, yeah, before we, uh, we'll, we'll come to that in a, a little bit more in the second and third segments of the show. But um, Michael Shermer, it's not just us. It's not just homo sapiens, right? I mean, animals can confuse themselves uh, about patterns, too. Talk about the pigeons, the B.F. Skinner box pigeons.
1: Yes, well, you open with the uh, the little rats. Yeah. Of course, it's the same thing with uh, with pigeons or any any organism. Anything with a brain is going to make connections between things. That's one of the things neurons do. So the example I use in in the believing brain is my own research in a um, Skinnerian lab, uh, in which we train pigeons to peck at keys and rats to press bars and so on. To, and they were trying to figure out, just like your your fun example. Uh, little rats that were, what the pattern is in order to get a reinforcement. So we know how that works, that dopamine is released in the brain, it feels good, it's nice to get a reinforcement. And so you try to find the pattern and uh, in, in our case, it turns out if you give them n- no particular pattern to find, that is you just randomly reinforce them, uh, their behavior, they will still find a pattern anyway. They will, they will you know, turn two times to the left and once to the right and touch the wing on the, the you know, the, the left wall of the cage and so on. They'll find a pattern, and and that's called superstition. That's called magical thinking. Skinner, Skinner discovered that in the 50s it's been It's been replicated many times since, but you don 't have to look at pigeons. you can just go to Las Vegas or Atlantic City and see the same process of people sitting there at slot machines trying to figure out the pattern and Of course, uh, you know the slot machine owners know this and they reward them just enough to keep them sitting there, but not so much that they can actually win in the long run. You will lose and uh, and so that's you know that p- process of magical thinking pattern pattern seeking behavior that leads to superstitions that is why people believe all these sorts of things, conspiracy theories, and and even uh, you know many religious beliefs. Um, like in, in my analogy of the hominid on the plains of Africa, you hear the rustle on the grass. What's the difference between um, you know a, 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 the wind and a dangerous predator? The, the, the wind is an inanimate force. A dangerous predator is an agent. So we call this I call this agenticity, the, the tendency to find hidden agents uh operating everywhere. And that's the basis of animism and spiritualism and and polytheism and monotheism, the idea that there's angels and gods and demons and secret conspiracies and cabals operating behind the scenes, pulling the strings, making things happen in our world. We find those forces everywhere. And and the reason we assume agency out there is because Uh, The assumption of the intention of a predator, his intention is to eat me, and that's bad, is also good for evolutionary purposes. We're more likely to survive if we make those certain assumptions, and it doesn't cost that much to make that assumption. So it's a, it's a it's a good error to make in an evolutionary environment, not so good now, but it doesn't take you out of the gene pool, so we still have that wired into our brains.
3: Yeah, so um, there's so much to respond to there. So yeah, you're describing kind of a Pascal's wager, right? I mean, the price uh, of being wrong about the predator uh, being there is low compared to the price of being wrong to not think the predators there and it's sort of interesting as we talk about patterns too because there's there's two ways in which patterns work one of them is recognizing a pattern and then thinking you know what comes next and the other is recognizing when a pattern has been disrupted with the predator it's really the latter you know what the wind in the grass sounds like if you hear something different if you the hominid hear something different you're really what you're really sort of saying is this isn't the pattern that i'm
1: used to something's wrong here right that's right. So it stands out. So we notice things that are emotionally salient, unusual. This is why we pay close attention to things like shark attacks and terrorist attacks, and and it worries us. We we fear the wrong things, as psychologists like to say. Uh, you know, we don't think about you know overeating, diabetes, heart disease, cancer. We worry about the terrorist attack or the shark attack, even though that's a very low probability of causing us any harm. I mean, the number one cause of injury and death for people over sixty-five. Is is falling but how many times do you get up in the morning and you think about and worry about falling right so our brains are wired up to notice just the most emotionally salient things that stand out because in a natural environment that those kinds of things would have really mattered but in, in today 's world we don 't we 're not good at making those probabilistic calculations which again back to the gambling example is why we 're not good gamblers <laughs> and you actually have to sort of cheat the system to, to really win count, card counting or whatever uh, because our natural instincts about probabilities, estimating risks, for example. We're terrible at estimating risks. Um, and so our intuitions like that are, are not good. Um, so there's a condition called apophenia where you are seeing
3: patterns where where there are no patterns. Um, and, and one of the things that you point out is that this – I mean, you mentioned dopamine before, that we're actually – I mean, it, if like if you think of if you think of the movie conspiracy theory with Mel Gibson, you know, he's seeing all kinds of patterns where there aren't any, except that there turns out to be some. But we'll get to that in just a second. Yeah. But but and he's in this really kind of heightened state. Right. He's in this almost manic state of excitement because, in fact, our wiring is still such that the neurochemicals that are being secreted are saying, yeah, that's really good that you're seeing these patterns. And but the exactly, neurochemicals, yeah. they, but they don't really evaluate whether we're right or not
1: yeah my friend Jared Diamond calls this constructive paranoia uh, that is and he got this idea from studying his friends Papua New Guinea uh, you know a traditional society in which they have to worry about things like trees falling in the night when you put your pitch your tent underneath it uh, it 's good to be paranoid um, because even though the probabilities are low, if you sleep under a tree every single night for a thousand straight nights, the odds are you will be killed by a tree, so being paranoid like that actually has benefits in that kind of environment now where that goes wrong is where you be- begin finding patterns everywhere you know that that 911 was an inside job and you know jfk and and the and the illuminati and the one world order and the trilateral commission and the you know this and that pretty soon everywhere you turn there's a conspiracy and you don't want to leave your house and, and and at some point it becomes you know psychosis. That is, you literally can't leave your house, and that that becomes destructive of somebody's life. So, uh, uh, so the, the question is, what's the right amount of paranoia? You want you want enough that you you know you look both ways before you cross the street, and so on. You want to be a little bit cautious and paranoid, but not too much.
3: You know, uh, John Briggs, um, That, by the way, you should, you should read the emails I get. I mean, I hear from these people. But anyway, um, John Briggs, it seems as though if you look at sort of modern culture, uh, since you're a professor of English, it seems as though this idea has persisted but transmuted. So you look at the works of, of Thomas Pynchon and David Foster Wallace. Uh, you look, look at a popular thriller like Three Days of the Condor. What happens there is the, the character who wound up being played by Robert Redford, he sees a pattern that nobody else sees. Uh, William Gibson has a, a novel called Pattern recognition, the same thing. There's a sense that, you know, that we're still in a way exactly where Michael Shermer just, uh, describes us thousands of years ago on the grasslands. In the sense, anyway, that you can be as crazy as Mel Gibson is in conspiracy theory or in real life for that matter. And, but all you have to be is right once, right? If you see a pattern that nobody else sees and it, it's a real pattern. That the, uh, In fact, our culture is telling us you, you ought to still be thinking that way
4: our culture amplifies pa- those kinds of paranoid patterns <clears throat> so we get uh uh more and more of them they have a, a greater strength i th- i think than uh, than they would have in the past um uh, <clears throat> and we have kind of a cultural psychosis the 911 conspiracies and those other conspiracies uh, that you mentioned are uh, are rampant the media keeps them alive and and recycles them So uh, there's something about the pattern uh, paranoia that gets reinforced by the feedback that comes from uh, the culture at large.
3: But, you know, Michael Shermer, that that argues— for looking for some kind of sweet spot, right? Some kind of sweet spot between the kind of paralyzing over-connection uh, that somebody with apophenia, somebody who can become housebound by this can make, and a, a kind of agnosticism about patterns. I mean, the reality is there are patterns. We're going to be talking about behavioral patterns in the next segment. We're going to be talking about fractal patterns in nature and art uh, uh, in the final segment. That in a way, ag- uh, an agnosticism about patterns makes us the dumbest hominid on the modern Grasslands, the person who just is not going to see the missile coming when it comes.
1: Correct, right. So, I mean, one question, I, uh, why can't the hominid just sit there in the grass and collect more data to determine whether it's just the wind or a dangerous predator? And the answer is because that, too, will will get, make you lunch. That, too, will take you out of the gene pool because predators don't wait around for prey animals to collect more data about them. That's why predators are stealthy. That's why they stalk their prey. That's why they're camouflaged. And so you have to make the assumption that patterns are real. You, you simply do. And the question is, is which patterns are real and which are not. And until the invention of science just in the last couple centuries, we had no reliable method of determining which patterns are true or false. And, but that's what science is all about. I mean, is global warming real or isn't it? Well, in principle, we can answer that question by looking at the patterns in the tree rings, the patterns in the ice core, the patterns in weather data, and so forth, and, and then you know, just run these models and see which ones are correct. And all of science is about pattern recognition the determination of which patterns are real and, and which aren't. Is the economy doing this or that? That's a pattern. And the science is the best tool we have. Our in, our instincts, our intuitions are just not good enough to get it right often enough that, that we need in, in, in the modern world. And so that's why we need science.
3: Right. I mean, our instincts include a lot of things that are, frankly, irrational. Michael Shermer, I mean, you talk about the fact that we actually have an instinct to see faces uh, in
1: things that don't have faces, right? Yes, right. The Virgin Mary on the side of a building, or uh, on, on a grilled cheese sandwich that sold for twenty-eight thousand dollars on eBay. Uh, I mean, these kinds of things that you know we we laugh at, but people, a lot of people take them very seriously if they have linkages to you know spiritual or religious type beliefs. And uh, and and again, uh, you know, pe- pe- you know people are very moved by these kinds of experiences uh, of you know going out in the woods and you see a waterfall, or you you know you hear a voice, or something. Like this, it it moves people dramatically. Even you know professional scientists, super rational people, super smart, educated, and so on, they'll have a personal experience that changes their life. Um, and they, even though they recognize, a lot of them write me and they say, "I read your book, but this thing happened to me, and I don't think it fits the explanations you provide by you know neurochemistry or you know these sorts of brain anomalies that everybody has. Mine was different than those. Of course, every anomalous experience is by definition, different and unique to that person, but... The question is, is it real? I mean, it's real inside the person's head. The experience is real that people have. But the question is, does the experience represent something out in the world or inside the mind? And so in often these cases that I write about, they're inside the mind. I don't deny that people have real experiences that, that moves them and changes their life. You know, they become a different person because of this experience. But, but as, from a scientist's perspective, we want to know, but is it real? I mean, is it really out there in the world? All right. We're going to take
3: a little break. We're going to now expand this conversation. Uh, John Briggs and Michael Sherman will stay with us. But we're going to expand this conversation to talk about human behavior, patterns in human behavior. All right. Uh, we're back. And joining us also now, uh, John Briggs and Michael Shermer, still with us, Dr. John Amoroso, uh, a clinical psychologist and mental health instructor at Atlantic University in Virginia. He's the author of Awakening Past Lives. We're going to be talking uh, a bit now about how to apply that kind of pattern-seeking and pattern-recognizing behavior uh, to, to, to human behavior and, um, and I mean, there's sort of a long history of this, and and now with the advent of, of chaos theory, um, there are new iterations of this. Um, but uh, but John Amoroso, I don't know, put put a big frame around this for us. Um, uh, how how repetitious how, how, are you know? There's an old joke. There's a famous old joke about uh, yeah. two old men who sit on a porch in a small town, and they have the same argument every single day. One of them says that it's just one thing after another, and the other one says it's the same old thing day after day. So. So the the pattern argument would be it's the same old thing day after day, that people's patterns make their behavior predictable and recognizable. How much do you buy into that?
1: Well,
5: uh, to a a great extent, Colin. Um, One way to look at this is that we form behavioral patterns in the the normal course of life, usually focused on simplifying our routines for the day. We get up in the morning at 6, make coffee, have breakfast, wake up the children, take them to school, go to work. These are our uh, general behavioral patterns focused on eliminating chaos, basically, and making life easier. And <clears throat> ultimately, at an, an extreme version, they're, they're around surviving and developing through the process of life. Uh, we even know that these patterns, as we... Create behavioral patterns. We form neurological networks. Uh, Michael maybe can speak to this as well. Uh, that light up and uh, engage us in our patterns, and we we form unique patterns in in a positive way throughout the course of uh, of the day. Um, but there is such a thing as, and this is really. Uh, I mentioned this in my book, um, and it's really an extension of the work of of Carl Jung, Um, we also form negative patterns or complexes as a result or a reaction to uh, challenging or threatening or traumatic experiences uh, as we go through life. Um, As a result of this, our, our natural tendency is to uh, create defensive reactions to, again, eliminate the chaos and, and, you know, in a protective way.
3: Give us an example of this.
5: Well, a, a good example is, is probably Ben, who um, who's in my book, who uh, grew up in a, you know, a pretty traumatic childhood. He He was the youngest of uh, siblings that were 10 years older than him, so he felt abandoned or neglected. His father was an alcoholic. And uh, at the age of 12, his mother was diagnosed with, with cancer, and within a year and a half, she died. So Ben basically is forming a an abandonment complex. Uh, and And with that are certain reactive behaviors, basically, that... That helped to form basically Ben's personality. Consequently, Ben grows into adulthood and has um, engages in relationships. And when I saw him, started to see him in therapy, he was engaged and coming in and saying, You know, my, my fiance, I feel like, is, is going to abandon me. Well, he was projecting that on her. He was hypersensitive to the, to the idea of being abandoned. And in prior relationships, he did attract people that that did abandon him, neglect him, or cheat on him. So it gets, gets a little complicated in terms of the defensive reactions, but But Ben was hypersensitive to being abandoned.
3: Right. So that's the. the, I'm going to just stop you here, so we can kind of uh, analyze this a little bit. So Michael Shermer, in the first segment, we talked about um, this thing in terms of cost. All right. So there's uh, under certain circumstances, there's a high cost of ignoring a pattern or a shift in pattern, a low cost of believing in the significance of that. So that's what works for the hominid uh, on the grasslands who thinks he may or may not hear a lion coming. Now here we're looking at at a really high cost to Ben because he thinks he's. He's detected a pattern in human affairs, and this pattern is not to, not to trust intimacy, not to believe in relationships, to see the worm in every apple, um, to see really a predator in the grass every time he enters a relationship. And he's layering onto it something that we also haven't, ta- haven't talked about so far, which is a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Now that he's seen this pattern, he's going to create this pattern over and over.
1: Right. So, um, well, the fact is, um, no relationship is guaranteed. Uh, there is always the possibility your significant other or spouse uh, could cheat on you. <clears throat> Excuse me. Rates of infidelity are just high enough that um, it it does require some effort to, to you know to what's called mate guarding, just to you know make sure that your spouse or partner is taken good care of, that they know that they're loved. In fact, you know what you call love without evidence? Stalking. This is Tim Minchin's little joke, uh, but uh, there's a lot behind that. Uh, I mean, if you are giving love to somebody who doesn't give it back, that is stalking, and uh, and 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 you do look for signs of affection from your spouse, your partner, your significant other, because if 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 signs don't come back, you should be a little paranoid. Like, hmm, I wonder if there's a problem. Maybe something's not quite right. And uh, so that you know, there, there's good reas- reasons for that. And, and you know, we know from DNA studies now that somewhere between three and six percent of Babies in a maternity ward uh, do not belong to the guy who's standing there. Uh, so there's just enough cuckolding that goes on that, um, you know, people do need to pay attention. You do, do need to take care of your relationships and nourish them because there is that risk. Uh, so, again, you know, uh, uh, ben, you know this, the, the person Ben takes this too far, obviously. Um, and, you know, that there's a balance there. There's always that balance. So,
3: um, John Briggs, I think we think of um, human agency and the, uh, sort of the, the human factor, the human element. That's almost synonymous with the introduction of chaos, right? That um, the human factor means, well, yes, you can set up this system that you think is sort of orderly, but once you introduce human beings I- into it who are un- unpredictable and you have um, all these qualities uh, that are impulse-driven and complex, um, your system becomes a lot less predictable. But, you know, with the advent of, of, of fract theory of nonlinear dynamics of, um, uh, of chaos theory there's, there's sort of a thinking that well no you know what we really maybe can look at human behavior as unpredictable it is, uh, as it is but and see little pieces of order within a, a kind of a disorderly system so suddenly you've got people looking at stock market movements and military strategies and outbreaks of war and, and, and the rise of cities you and I were talking before we went on the air today uh, about the fact that this morning I was on a different kind of show talking about the state budget. And I was sort of saying that, um, you know, legislators, they they look at a hospital tax. And they think, well, you know, if we tax 5% of hospital revenues and we know that hospital revenues in this state are $1 million, we'll get whatever 5% of $1 million is. I can't do that math right now, but that's what we'll get. Whereas economists look at this and say, no, that's a very small system. That's a very small, that's a butterfly flapping its wings. And there's a lot of other things that will happen if you do that. But we can measure those things.
4: Well, measure measure in the collective sense. Uh, <clears throat> the, the, one of the problems is that you you can't uh, you can't measure very well the, the, what a particular individual is going to do. You may know his uh, some of his habits, but if that individual operates creatively and is being influenced by other in, individuals, uh, mm-hmm. the predictability is, it goes down pretty quickly. Uh, on a on a grand scale, on a collective level, you can you can see patterns, but uh, <clears throat> on the individual level, it's it's harder to detect. And one of the things I think it's important to emphasize is, in the case of Ben and and as we were talking earlier, um, if the if you're simply relying on the pattern as a stereotype. Uh, so that you are responding to it as Ben did. Uh, a- every time you have a relationship, you uh, you impose that pattern and, and presume that it's going to end up badly because the person will will abandon you. You may even get to the to the point of if the person doesn't abandon you, you uh, you kick them so that they do ab- abandon you. That's called projective identification, I think, John uh <clears throat> so we we uh, we all we have a, one of the problems is we have a, a theory of mind that we're always trying to uh, and it's a good thing we're trying to figure out we we know the other person has a mind and uh and operates in something like the way that we do and we're trying to predict what that is uh people like legislators if they're good legislators uh understand that certain patterns uh are are Creative and they have to. They remain flexible, so they look for patterns. Uh, if they don't find them, they uh, push on, and uh, and eventually something uh, emerges out of that uh, chaotic movement, if you if you will, a dynamic movement that takes place. So that if if we want to respond to the world only in terms of uh, stereotypical patterns and rigid patterns, uh, we're in for trouble. Uh, if we're more open uh then we may <clears throat> we may be able to move away from the uh the sound that we heard in the in the bushes so that we won't get uh jumped on if it turns out to be a tiger and look back and see the wind and maybe even appreciate the wind and write a poem about it.
3: All right, so Michael Shermer, you know we talk about patterns. Uh, John Amoroso is talking about patterns in in kind of a negative way, but we also know there 's this gigantic industry um, in in America and elsewhere that that thrives on the notion that there are detectable patterns which lead to success in life. so the entire career of you know Tony robbins is is based on this, and uh, a guy like Stephen Covey, Covey, who did the seven Habits of highly effective people we could sell we could substitute the word patterns for habits here. you do the same things over and over again, you do them. The the same way, these things are positive uh, things we are told, and 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 not in the magical thinking way of Wade Boggs imagining that if he eats chicken every day, he's going to get a hit. Okay, that's a superstition. It doesn't really make any sense. It's just a weird uh, attempt to control reality in the way that you talked about in the first segment. But you know, as many bad patterns as we can see, there there's this huge industry peddling the idea that there are good patterns, and if you get into these good patterns, you're going to be okay. You're going to be great. Uh, How much stock do you put
1: in that? Not much. Most of those Uh, Programs have not been tested empirically. They are anecdotal in nature. They are subject to the confirmation bias uh, and the hindsight bias. Confirmation bias is once you have a hypothesis or idea, you then look for and find confirming evidence to support it, and you ignore the disconfirming evidence. Uh, What about all the successful people that didn't have those habits? You know, Covey didn't study those. He only started off with, you know, a subset, a small set of people that were successful, looked through, defined what characteristics of their personality and their behaviors and their life uh, history uh, made them that way. But of course, what about, again, what about the people he didn't study? And what about the people that had different habits that were successful what about the people that had those habits who failed um it, you know it's a, it's a little bit a little bit like um you know malcolm gladwell's book uh, out outliers you know well the beatles put in 10,000 hours the 10,000 hour rule and so forth. well what about all the rock bands that put in 20,000 hours and they still stink uh, you know what about the you know one hit wonders and and you know there's so many exceptions to these rules and um, you know, these books that find, they start off with uh, companies, like they take 10 companies and, and they Follow their stock, um, their stock success over the course of a decade or whatever, but they're they're ignoring you know all the other companies that were that that had the same kind of profiles or same management styles or whatever who didn't succeed and uh, those so these things are really really difficult to test. Social scientists specialize in in these things with complex statistical modeling to try to control for intervening variables, and none of those self help books by Tony Robbins or Covey or any of those have ever done anything like that to try to find the real patterns. And so uh, I don't put much stock in those. I mean, there's some basic things like, you know, you should set goals and write them down and, you know, things like that. Yeah, of course. Um, But social scientists do study things like what makes people happy or, you know, self-satisfaction. And there are a handful of patterns that turn out to be true, like meaningful work. Having family or loving relationships, having uh, some kind of goals in life, uh, you know, beyond just work, uh, you know, doing something fulfilling, working for a nonprofit or, you know, trying to help your local community. These are the kinds of things that in, in these huge statistical bases that they have in which they do control for all those other variables turn out to be true. So there are real patterns. They're just really difficult to find and, and to control for those um, those those confirmation bias and the, and the hindsight bias. And so on.
3: or maybe they're really easy to find. You know, Warren Buffett says you're probably you're not smart enough to uh, to really figure out the stock market and, and be a stock picker, and you're not you're not going to be good. The average person is best advised to put their money in an index fund, and that and you know, based on everything that we know about thirty year increments or something, your money's going to be fine. It's going to maybe go up and down, but but we know in terms of looking at a larger system, you'll be okay. So John Amorosa, in a way, what Michael Shermer just said is sort of the emotional and life equivalent of the difference between being a day trader, trying to make a lot of sharp, shifty moves that are going to work out okay, and doing something that has kind of longitudinal pro- uh, promise. Have a job that you really like, belong to a community, you can do these sort of basic um, minimum daily emotional requirements that, that, that seem over time to bear fruit, even if they're kind of boring to talk about. So, I mean, an awful lot of psychology and psychotherapy does seem to be Um, substituting a positive pattern uh, for the negative pattern that you began our conversation discussing. You've got Ben. uh, He's just basically uh, piling on uh, to the pattern that he saw earlier in his life. Is it possible to give Ben or anybody else a different pattern to follow?
5: Well, Michael's making an important point, and this is a good question, Colin. In in my approach in therapy, and it's interesting because Carl Jung just started to explore the idea of negative complexes, and never got into the idea of positive complexes. But, you know, on an individual basis, as we grow up, we have these challenging or traumatic experiences that can form through defensive reactions into negative complexes that, and patterns that we deal with throughout life, like Ben. But we also grow up uh, with activating enlivening ex- positive experiences and uh, and they're unique to each of us you know they can have to do with skills or abilities or ways of being in the world and that's where we feel enlivened or uh, adequate as opposed to inadequate and the reason I agree with Michael is that in working with individuals we have to pay attention to their personalities and the idea uh, in all the trainings I've done with, with professional psychologists and so forth and, and with my clients is to activate the positive and de-energize the negative. I do that through the te- technique of integrated imagery that I use but it's it's critical to uh, explore the mechanism of these positive complexes and skills and abilities and, and then it's about pursuing uh, you know turning that into pursuing a, a passion in life or an interest or a skill or, or a career or even, a, a, you know, a, a hobby. But it's, uh, it's bringing to the surface the positive and, you know, as I said, de-energizing that negative.
3: All right. We're going to have to take a quick break here. Thanks to John Amoroso. Uh, we're uh, going to move on uh, to – we really have to talk a little bit more about chaos theory, complexity theory. Uh, we'll do that after this break.
1: on my wall. My
3: eyes can dimly see the pattern of my life and the puzzle that is me.
2: I see how it is now. Using modern statistical analysis, I can prove that every global disaster of the last six years occurred five minutes after someone purchased a Justin Bieber recording. Today's show was produced by Josh Naleya and me, Kayone Wolf. Our interns are Alex Dubin, Hillary St. Germain, and Alison Ehrenreich. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin, and the part of Bill Curry was played by William Gibson. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton show staff attempting to record the scream of a melting snowflake, visit our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show, our salute to dragons. And now back to Colin.
3: That's right. We're living in an age of dragons these days from the Hobbit movies to uh, Game of Thrones to How to Train Your uh, Dragon. We'll talk about what these archetypes mean. They don't always mean the same thing, too. Anyway, uh, that's tomorrow. Right now, we're talking about patterns and um, uh, I want to sort of move into the area uh, of chaos theory because, uh, you know, we moved. We're talking right now to John Briggs and Michael Shermer. Michael Shermer, science writer, historian, and founder of the Skeptic Society, is the author of a dozen books including the New York Times best selling The Believing Brain. Uh, John Briggs is in studio with me. He's a professor in the English department at Western Connecticut State University, the author of Fractals, The Patterns of Chaos and the Turbulent Mirror. Um, So, there isn't really time to talk about the entire structure of knowledge. But, John Briggs, we, we moved from a time of kind of Cartesian and Newtonian relative certainties into this much more chaotic view of the universe in which we realized that, that controlled experiments, you write this in one of your uh, books, uh, the controlled experiments are kind of in almost a joke in a way in the sense that life and nature are rarely controlled. There's a lot of entropy. There's a lot of variation in input. Um, but one of the things that chaos theory seemed to discover is that within that disorder, there were these windows of order, right, that, that um, even, even given how much entropy there is, uh, how much disorder, how much every system tends to deteriorate, um, there were ways in which you could find these pockets of order that looked almost Newtonian.
4: By the way, uh, dragons are uh, one of the ancient symbols for chaos. There you go. (laughs) All of our shows are connected. There you go. Uh, Let me clarify a little bit, as I was saying to you earlier. uh, We have uh, at least three kinds of chaos. One is what people usually consider to be their life. Um, And secondly, we have the randomized chaos that's referred to as entropy. Uh, which is an ultimately low energy uh, situation. A- and then we have far from e- what's called a far from equilibrium state uh, of high energy uh, in which it becomes difficult, if not probably impossible, to predict in detail what the system is going to do. Uh, and that's a chaotic system, and it's sometimes considered a boundary area because. Uh, <clears throat> A boundary between order and total random uh, activity. Uh, Because of the high energy, it will sometimes give birth to forms, to to regular ordered forms. So I was just in um, southern Utah uh, hiking in canyon country, which is uh, formed by chaos. It's full of what are called fractals. Fractals are uh, the marks and signs of, of chaotic activity. Uh, <clears throat> so one of the things to keep in mind is that uh, when we we're talking about chaos, we're talking about very complex systems. They're dynamical systems uh, in which one thing is affecting another through positive feedback loops, which uh, sort of spin out of control, and negative sp- feedback loops, which are more regulatory. Um, the weather is usually a... a the the example it's given and in, in, is most familiar to people. If uh, you think about weather forecasting and how difficult that is, you see the the forecaster using many many extremely complicated models to try to predict where the hurricane is going to go. Um, the weather is a classic dynamical system. It has uh, many many moving parts. Uh, in fact, in some sense, it's. Uh, uh, one is sort of misspeaking uh, even to refer to it as parts. you got wind speed, you got temperature, you got pressure. All those things are changing constantly. And one of the things that was discovered, uh, the main thing that was discovered back in the 1960s was that when you have a weather system, the assumption had been that um, the more data points you had, the more weather stations you had, the better your information uh, about what was going on at the present, the better would be your long-term forecasting prediction. And it was discovered, in fact, that wasn't the case, that uh, you you can get better, better weather prediction over a short haul, but uh, the system is so dynamic and, and so uh, volatile that a butterfly flapping its wings in Brazil can... Change the weather in New York, as the adage uh, goes.
3: You know, Michael Shermer. As we look at these things, that we we look at iterative fractals, where it, it seems as though from a pretty random process, um, you see these uh, repetitions of patterns. Where in fact, within a larger structure, there's a, um, a pattern of smaller structures that look like the larger structure, and maybe even a pattern of smaller than that structures that look like the second largest structure. Um, you uh, people experiment with things like Sierpinski triangles, where the random roll of a dice begins to create that. That same kind of fractal pattern. And so in the way that we talked about at the beginning of the show, there is a tendency to say, wow, you know, if in fact when we try to make something random, it seems to revert towards order then, you know, maybe that's an argument for intelligent design. Maybe there's some master force in the universe that's making this these uncanny um, shapes and patterns emerge again and
1: again. You as a skeptic obviously have to find some way of unhorsing that idea. <laughs> Indeed. Well, <clears throat> one of the things our brains are not good at is detecting randomness. Because randomness doesn't really look random to our brains. So if you uh, show subjects, uh, for example, a series of heads and tails of a coin flip model for you know several hundred flips, uh, it doesn't look random because what you see is you know heads, tails, heads, 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 tails tails, 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 heads, 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 tails. You know there's long streaks, and this is one of the mistakes gamblers make. They they think, well, what are the chances of my losing you know seven times in a row if I place a bet on red or black at the roulette table? Actually, the chances are pretty good. You're going to lose your money because uh, it doesn't go heads, tails, heads, tails, red, black, red, black, like we think intuitively. And in fact, if you ask subjects to write down what they think would be a random series of uh, coin flips, they will write something like heads, tails, heads, tails, heads, tails. It doesn't look like that. So it's very hard for us to detect real randomness in nature because randomness is clumpy. And it's that clumpiness that actually ends up leading to structure, whether it's gravitational clumpiness of atoms forming a, a solar system through a, a condensing cloud of interstellar gas or weather systems described earlier and so on. Uh, it turns out that uh, there's two effects that I like in chaos theory, uh, path dependency and the initial conditions. Uh, so let's say you decide to go to this college instead of that college, and it turns out at the one you chose, you 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 met your future spouse and you have kids. You end up living in the city. You end up working at this particular company, and, and your life turned out a certain way. But had you gone to this other college, you would have met somebody else and married somebody different and, and so on. It would have been a completely different life. Trajectory, But either one, uh, when you're done, when you look back, you write your memoirs or whatever, You it, it feels like it was inevitable. Like, boy, I made the right choice. Had I not made that choice, then I wouldn't have met this person. I wouldn't have got that job. This would have never happened to me. But that's going to be the case no matter which decision you make. So in terms of decision-making about life uh, outcomes, Often it doesn't really matter, <laughs> because however it turns out, with the hindsight bias in full gear, you will find a way to to string it all together in a causal sequence that seems not only plausible but inevitable, deterministic, fatalistic, almost like uh, you know it was our destiny to meet, uh, as couples often say, and uh, it, it feels like that to our brains, as almost as if there's a god or a or a fate uh, out there, kind of directing things, even though that does not appear to be the case.
3: We have to stop. I dare not ask another question. I've only got about 60 seconds left. I will say that one of the things I'd really hope to get to—we just ran out of time, though— John Briggs has some very interesting things to say about what happens when you try to be random. It's actually sort of harder than you think. Uh, Jackson Pollock trying to create uh, a randomness in his paintings, and it turns out there are fractal patterns that show show up there against his best intentions. Anyway, we'll have to save save that for another day. Thanks to Josh Nalea, This show was his idea. He brought it into being. Thanks to Kyan Wolf on the board there, too. Get ready for our show about dragons tomorrow. Everywhere we see them there, we stop and stare at patterns. We don't care, we must be clear, we've got a flavor patterns.
2: On we our hair, the clothes we where our there is patterns. is patterns, the patterns that repeat. Wallpapers, skyscrapers, funny papers, patterns, evergreens, new Bell cuisine, human beings, patterns, Okay, Doc, what's my diagnosis?
1: I'm afraid you have patternicity.
2: Uh, I'm sorry, what?
1: I'm afraid you have patternicity. Say again. I'm afraid you have patternicity.
2: I don't believe it, for once.